Grab your trowel and a cup of coffee. You're listening to Archeo Cafe. I'm your host, Otis Crandell. Welcome to another episode of Archeo Cafe. I'm Otis, and today I have a co-host, Renata Araujo, helping me out. Hello, everyone. In this episode, we're talking with Caitlin O'Keefe at the University of Calgary in Alberta, Canada. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So tell me, what first got you interested in archaeology? So I've always had an interest in the past, uh, whether that be the human past um, or paleontology, fossils, things like that. Um, And I wrote actually in my elementary yearbook that I wanted to be an archaeologist. So as early as grade six, uh, that was kind of an idea in my head. Wow. Um, And I also grew up camping and being outdoors a lot with my family. So a Mm. career in archaeology really is the best of both worlds, working outside, exploring, but then also learning about the past as well. (laughs) Did you think about going into paleontology? I mean, you're in the great region for that. I actually did think about it. Uh, My grandmother on my father's side was a paleontologist at Mm -hmm. uh, the Geological Survey for a brief period, I believe in the 60s or 70s. And so I really thought about it, uh, and I just didn't quite get there. I got so uh, interested in my courses in archaeology, and I did take some geology courses, but archaeology turned out to be where I had most interest. I mean, if you ever decide to switch, you got the Badlands right there. And if you want to go into dinosaurs, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, sure. I, guess that, I guess that's right in your backyard. It is. So when did you decide to make a career in archaeology, Caitlin? So it wasn't really until about halfway through my undergraduate degree. Uh, it wasn't really a straightforward path. Uh, I initially applied for a biological sciences degree, but then it wasn't accepted. So I started taking a year of what's called open studies here, which basically means you're taking any classes you want at a university to explore and figure out what you want to do. And so these classes included, you know, forensics, archaeology, and then some biological anthropology, so like human Mm -hmm. evolution. Yeah. And I got really, really interested in those classes and transferred to the University of Calgary to take some more classes in anthropology. Right. Uh, All was well. And then... I began avoiding taking some of my like primate classes in favor of archaeology options and just ended up transferring and loving it. Um, oh, wow. and, you know, from there, <laughs> from there, really uh, getting super, super interested in wanting to get some fieldwork experience as well. What is your main area of interest now in archaeology? I'd say as, like, as every archaeologist, we have so many different um, interests, but I find it pulls me in different directions, though my focus mainly has been the archaeology um, of Western Canada, so in the mm-hmm. plains, um, in the Western Arctic, and then uh, over in British Columbia as well. I've studied a little bit, um, so it's pretty broad, but I do find myself most interested nowadays in heritage protection um, and education, mm-hmm. as well right. as using all those new technologies to record and document archaeological sites. Yeah. And do you do that for historical and prehistorical archaeology for all periods? Yeah, so in general, um, I've been working as a consulting archaeologist for several years, and most of the sites um, I've worked at are prehistoric sites, mm-hmm. uh, so before um, before settlers in, in the West here. 
Um, however, I'm sure that in the future I'll come across some historic sites. And in my research um, at Pauline Cove, that's definitely got a historic component as well. Nice. So, Caitlin, one of your areas of specialization is the use of unmanned aerial vehicles or UAVs or drones. What are some of the uses of UAVs in archaeology? For sure. I'll probably refer to them as drones for the podcast just because it's a little bit easier um, to okay. say every time. So, so drones can really be used for so many different things. And I think when people think about drones, they think about using them in their backyards, just mm -hmm. mostly a fun thing. Um, but in research, they're really widespread. So in archaeology, they've been used to map known sites. Um, so traditionally, we would do pedestrian survey. You're walking around, you're measuring um, all sorts of like time, really time consuming activities. So drones can be used to map these sites really fast and really efficiently. Mm -hmm. And it also enables us to survey for, for new sites that aren't known. So you can put your drone up in the air and survey a really large area. Yeah. And sometimes just that different perspective of looking down on an area, you'll be able to identify sites that you can't see from the ground. An example of this is uh, in the plains. There's a lot of what we call like rock features or stone features. So these can be teepee rings or actual um, figurines that are made out of stones, but with overgrown grass, or maybe you don't see one stone next to each other. You mm -hmm. wouldn't recognize those things unless you look at them from the air. So that's yeah. one, one really good use of drones in archaeology. Another one is that you can actually access really hard to reach areas. So areas that maybe you wouldn't be able to go on foot. So an example would be like a cliff. Um, so say you're trying to get um, imagery of sides of cliffs and there's lots of pictographs on the sides, but you can't actually be there. It's too high up or maybe it's too hard to access. So that's a really good one. Um, another use is to document and record excavations. So while excavations are ongoing or perhaps just after you've wrapped up, you can take an aerial image using a drone of the excavation itself. Mm -hmm. So it's a way of making aerial photographs using drones and having some better technology for this recording, right? Yeah, that's definitely a, definitely one big use of it is, you know, it really, really shortens the time you need to do it. And you can make some pretty impressive visualizations for clients or for researchers. Uh, you can also make 3D models of the archaeological yeah. sites. So that's mm -hmm. um, one of the uses in my research as well is it captures a lot of 3D information. So you could actually make 3D prints of these archaeological sites for education purposes, museums, mm -hmm. etc. And make some 3D models out of photogrammetry, right? Exactly. So these, um, so I guess there's two types of drones. You can buy the lower end drones, which tend to not have the ability, they're getting a lot better, to stitch the images together into what's called an orthomosaic. So mm -hmm. an orthomosaic is basically that uh, stitched, all those images are stitched together into one big aerial image that looks like something you'd see on Google Earth, a satellite image. Mm -hmm. just looks like one large image. Mm -hmm. And so you can stitch them all together and make 3D models um, from those. That's the computers doing that afterwards. That's not the drones doing that, is it? 
It's not the drone itself. So when you fly a drone over an area, you have to have an overlap of a of certain percentage uh, based on the, the area. Normally, this is uh, predetermined by some software. And so you have this overlap basically enables the software afterwards to stitch the images nice together. And then whatever processing software you're using, you can select different options to make these uh, virtual models. Oh, okay, mm -hmm. I see what you mean, yes. And then one last use um, to discuss about the UAVs and archaeology drones and archaeology is that they're really useful um, for monitoring archaeological and heritage sites for change. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, what I'm focusing on in my own research. Could you tell us a bit about the site in Pauline Cove where you've been conducting research? For sure. So Pauline Cove is located um, on Kikik Tarek, which is uh, formerly called Herschel Island. It's an island off the Yukon uh, north coast, and its name means Big Island in Inuvialuktun. The island is located in the Inuvialuk settlement region, and Pauline Cove is really the island's most culturally significant area. Mm -hmm. So I've created a summary, a little summary about the history of Pauline Cove. Uh, I could go on for hours and hours about it, uh, but just a nice quick summary here. So Pauline Cove is really culturally significant because it's been occupied for approximately 800 years, first by the Inuvialuit and their ancestors, the Thule, and then later by Euro-American settlers. Pauline Cove became a hub for the whaling industry um, between 1890 and 1908. And during this time, over a thousand people would overwinter at the cove, including Inupiaq, uh, also known as the Alaskan Inuit, the Inuvialuit, and Dene. And these people all came to work for and trade with the whalers. Right. Others on the island at this time include fur traders, missionaries, and then later on the RCMP as well. So because of all these activities, there is a plethora of heritage features at Pauline Cove, uh, including the remnants of Inuvialuit sod houses mm -hmm. and also those historic buildings. Sod houses, um, they're all collapsed now, um, but they were built out of the driftwood. Um, we get lots of driftwood uh, just to the west of the Mackenzie Delta, which provides all of that nice wood, which is really actually uncommon in the Arctic. So they uh. built these out of the driftwood and the sod. So they're collapsed now, um, but you can, still, uh, you can still really see what they would have looked like with all the driftwood bits and the shape in general. Um, and the historic buildings, there are many of them at Pauline Cove, including the community house, which is considered to be the oldest wooden frame building still standing in the Yukon. And that was built in 1893. There's also oh. whalers, cabins, trading warehouses, and then there is one remaining ice house that was used for food storage at the turn of the 20th century. Oh, very nice. What type of wood was the driftwood, do you know? The driftwood is a combination of spruce and poplar. Oh, okay. And it gets deposited into the Mackenzie River when the banks of the rivers that lead into the Mackenzie erode. Mm -hmm. Then it gets carried through the Mackenzie Delta during ice breakup in the springtime. And then sea ice is really what transports it eventually to Herschel Island. Oh, okay. Hmm. Is it quite large pieces of wood? The wood is of all different sizes, but there are some really large logs on Herschel. The historic restoration crew actually used one of the biggest logs as a wave break to shelter one of the historic buildings during a really bad storm. Mm. So it gives you a bit of an idea on just how big these logs actually can be. 
There are lots of smaller fragments as well. These have been broken off larger logs. As you can imagine, uh, sea ice and waves can really take their toll, leaving us uh, lots and lots of small pieces. Oh, okay. mm -hmm. oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, the island today, there are no permanent residents anymore. However, it was made a territorial park in 1987. And today it serves as a staging area for researchers and seasonal park rangers as well. And then it is a traditional hunting and harvesting area for the Inuvi Alouette. Unfortunately, like most of the Yukon coast, uh, climate change is having an impact on the landscape and on the heritage features as a result. Coastal erosion is happening at an unprecedented rate in this area of the Arctic. And flooding is also really common at Pauline Cove, since the entirety of the spit is no more than a meter and a half above sea level. And then with additional polar tourism, all of these are expected to have an impact on the landscape and the heritage features. As you can imagine, if you're only a meter and a half above sea level, any sort of flooding or storm event is going to bring quite a bit of uh, water onto the spit and then the erosion just increases. So this is just another reason why it's important to, re to get our research done at Pauline Cove and to continue mm -hmm. to learn more about the history of the area. Just out of curiosity, do you know what is the difference in the the water level based on the tides? So for Pauline Cove, it's actually a microtidal environment. So the difference in tide is really not significant, um, oh, okay. which is actually was really interesting in my research because I was looking at, you know, here's my data from one year. Here's the data from the next year. And mm -hmm. is this a tide difference that we're seeing or is this the actual beach change? Is this something receding? And after looking at, at the data and the times and the tide information, the tides don't appear to play a significant role in terms okay. of flooding. I just pulled up the data here actually as well. So, you know, it goes from 0.4 of a meter to 0.7, and that's really all the difference that happens. Oh, so 0.3 okay. of a meter, 30 centimeters is about the change. But uh, really, the tides are, are not really the problem in this situation. Mm -hmm. We're getting a lot of uh, what's called a storm surge. And a storm surge is what happens when uh, you have a lot of open water and wind. And so the wind actually catches the top of the water and the it basically drags the water and it becomes like a flooding event and the water goes over the landform. And so this is becoming more common in the Arctic with longer open water seasons. So less ice coverage in the fall, especially the water is really warm and the water gets basically pushed over the landform and then because it's warm it does more damage for erosion because of the permafrost mm -hmm. on the on the landscape so it's all basically one big circle yeah mm -hmm. why did you decide to do research at this particular location for sure uh, so my academic supervisor, Dr. Peter Dawson, was part of an archaeological project at Pauline Cove in the early 1990s. And as part of this project, they were excavating Inuvialo at sod houses. So he's really familiar with the area. He now focuses mostly on digital archaeology. And because of this, he partnered with Yukon Heritage Resources to digitally capture the historic buildings at Pauline Cove. At the time uh, this project started, I was an undergrad student just wrapping up my undergraduate degree. And I was approached by one of my other professors who thought that I'd be a really good candidate for a potential master's project. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. And after talking with uh, 
Dr. Dawson and learning a bit more about this project, I really couldn't turn down such a great opportunity. And since, like most of the Yukon coast, climate change is having a great impact on the landscape, it's a project where a timely completion matters a lot. A lot of these archaeological features are disappearing. Oh, yes. So getting on this project and doing it right away um, was an opportunity that I just couldn't pass up for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, are there other, other sites in the Arctic uh, where this type of research is being conducted? I am. So I'm definitely aware of other areas where this type of research is being uh, started, at least. I actually have a colleague at the University of Calgary who's doing similar research, but in Greenland. So it's definitely becoming more prominent, um, and I'm very excited to see some of those results as well. Mm. What are some of the objectives of your research at Pauline Cove? So some broad objectives are to share the history of Pauline Cove with people who can't go to the island themselves. Um, It's a really challenging area to reach. It's really expensive to fly there. And so many people, many Canadians, um, even many people residing in the Mackenzie Delta won't get the opportunity to go to Pauline Cove just because it's hard to reach. And so to share the history of Pauline Cove with Canadians, with people from the Northwest Territories, with people from the Yukon, with people from all around the world um, is one objective of my research. Another is to inform others of the impact that climate change is having on heritage in the Arctic. And that's not only in the Canadian Arctic, um, but elsewhere in polar areas. And another uh, objective is to develop procedures that enable archeologists or park rangers to monitor this at-risk heritage not only at Pauline Cove, um, but hopefully the procedures will be applicable to other Arctic heritage sites. Okay. And could you give us an idea of what the sod house features that you wanted to excavate look like? I was curious to know why these features Mm -hmm. are archaeologically significant and what they look like. For sure. So originally my research, um, as mentioned, incorporated uh, excavation. So before the COVID-19 pandemic hit, I was set to excavate two sod houses that were right along the beach that we were worried were going to erode fairly soon. And so what they look like from, if you're looking in the aerial imagery, they're really not that much to see and they're kind of hard to pick out unless you know what you're looking at. Uh But when they were being used, essentially what they would do is dig into the permafrost and you create this entrance tunnel and then you create almost like a cross shape with three different like alcoves so one in the back and these would have been used as little like sleeping platforms or use areas yeah but you dug in only about you know half uh probably like a meter into the ground at most and then that was the base the floor of this house And then you'd pile up some driftwood along the edges and make walls. Mm -hmm. And so that would be essentially the frame of your roof. And then they would take Mm -hmm. sod cut out from uh, the tundra nearby and then put it on top as like an insulative or roof covering. So what we see now is we see that these have collapsed. So the driftwood has collapsed in on itself and it looks almost like a mound that has a lot of grass or a lot of sod on top with a few driftwood pieces sticking out here and there. All right. Yeah. And do you know approximately when they were built? 
Yeah, so some of the work that's been done previously at Pauline Cove has been uh, some testing and some excavation of these features. So some of them are predate European arrival um, at Pauline Cove. There was an area a little bit further from Pauline Cove called the Washout Site. This is a really, really well-known site, um, and it's what we call Thule, which is the ancestors of the Inuvialuit. This site's been dated to around 1400 AD, mm -hmm. um, so quite a bit older than some of the ones we see in Pauline Cove. And from the testing and the um, excavation of, of the ones at Pauline Cove itself, we know that they're younger than the ones that were at the washout site. Um, but because the washout site's no longer there and it's all eroded, hence the name washout, um, yeah. it's harder to compare them one-on-one, -on -one, but we know that the ones at Pauline Cove are younger. There are some that are, you know, before European arrival, perhaps a couple hundred years old. And then there's some that are from the period where Europeans are arriving, settlers are showing up, the whalers mm -hmm. are showing up. So we do get both of those periods. And that's part of why these buildings are so uh, interesting mm -hmm. is because when they're excavated, you see some of them won't have any evidence of trade goods. And then others, more recent ones, not only have evidence of what life was like before European or Europeans or Americans arrived. And then you have evidence of, okay, here's how life is changing for a new Vialuit. Um, once Europeans are arriving, they're having a lot more um, interaction with whalers and traders and just to see exactly how life is changing as they're everything they know. You can imagine you had not uh, encountered Europeans or Americans and all of a sudden your whole world is changing. So we can learn a lot from these, uh, these sod house buildings. Is it so they're sort of preserving the chronology of the location? Definitely. So we have, you know, those earlier uh, pre-contact sod houses, and then we have ones that are at the time of contact or just after contact. And then we have these historic buildings. So really at Pauline Cove, we have, mm -hmm. A, a, a timeline from from hundreds of years. Oh. Mm -hmm. How did you use data from drones in your research? So in July of 2019, I went up with my supervisor, Dr. Dawson, and an archaeologist from the Yukon government. And the purpose of this trip uh, was to capture some drone imagery of Pauline Cove, and then also to explore uh, the area, do some survey, and really uh, check out some of the heritage features we thought were at risk, specifically those sod house features. Mm -hmm. So we did a pedestrian survey of the area, but then we really focused on capturing the drone data. So on, I believe it was July 7th of 2019, we flew our drone over the area and then captured uh, imagery of Pauline Cove using what we call a fixed wing drone. So our fixed wing drone just means that it looks almost like a small plane. It doesn't look like a helicopter, um, the, although there are some drones like that. Mm -hmm. So our imagery, uh, we collected it all in one, uh, one afternoon. I used two sets of drone data, Pauline Cove, one from July of 2017 and one from July of 2019. The 2017 data was shared by another research group who initially collected the data to measure coastal erosion. This data was collected by Andrew M. Cunliffe, William F. Palmer, Jeffrey Kirby, and Isla H. Meyer-Smith. 
And there, this research was funded by the Natural Environmental Research Council, the National Geographic Society, and by the NERC Geophysical Equipment Society. The data was collected using a Zeta Phantom FX61 fixed-wing drone with a DSC RX100 camera. And in total, they captured 1,325 images that were then stitched together later in the processing uh, process. Because their imagery also captured the archaeological and historical buildings, I was able to repurpose this imagery for, for my own archaeological research. The 2019 data set, however, was collected by our research group. So by my supervisor, by Christian Thomas, a Yukon government archaeologist, and myself. Mm-hmm. And this research has been funded by the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology at the University of Calgary, the Yukon government, and by the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. Our data was captured using a SenseFly EBX fixed-wing drone with a SenseFly Soda camera. So for my research, I process these two data sets using a software called PIX4D. This is a software specifically meant for photogrammetry and for using drone images. Mm-hmm. And when I processed it, I selected options to obtain what's called an orthomosaic and point clouds. So as mentioned earlier, orthomosaics are images that are created by stitching together many smaller images to get one larger geometrically correct aerial image. Point clouds are, on the other hand, don't use, they use the information from the imagery and the 3D points to create a 3D reconstruction of the landscape using just those 3D points. So after processing, I had both the orthomosaics and the point clouds. Hmm. At this point, I used two change detection techniques to look for change happening between 2017 and 2019. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. How did you compare changes at the site over time? What methods did you use? You already talked a bit about this, but how exactly did you compare changes over time? So from the larger, um, from the data sets, I got really large orthomosaic images and point clouds, much larger than is manageable for any sort of change detection, at least at the master's degree level. So I selected two smaller focus areas. And these areas were really selected to include most of the heritage features. So these two smaller areas, one of them includes the central area, which is actually what I called it. And that's where most of the historic buildings are located. Mm -hmm. And then I chose a second area, which I called the feature area, which is where most of those archaeological sod houses are located. And that's just off to the side from the central area. Mm -hmm. And I cropped the orthomosaics and the point clouds to the extent of these two focus areas, just to narrow things down. Um, It is a very time uh, consuming process to look for the changes. So that was my way of of getting started. Mm -hmm. And then I chose two different methods to look for change. So the first method I used is called visual analysis or visual inspection. And this is a qualitative change detection technique where the viewer compares the imagery and makes notes of any differences seen with their naked eye. So Mm -hmm. to do this, I took the orthomosaic, so say for the central area, I took the 2017 and 2019 orthomosaics and overlaid them um, in a GIS software. So I had them both present in GIS software and overlaid a 10 by 10 meter grid on top of them. And then I just toggled on 
the 2017 and 2019 image and looked at the differences in each one of those 10 by 10 meter grid squares. Hmm. And so for every square, I made notes in an Excel sheet of the change I saw between the two images. So it's fairly straightforward. However, when you think about all the different types of change that could happen, so vegetation change, erosion change, any sort mm -hmm. of change at all, um, yeah. for each individual square, it uh, was a lot of looking back and forth because what you would see the first time you'd look at it, the next time you'd toggle that same square back and on and off, you'd notice something else that had changed as well. So that was the first method I used. And then the second method um, is called cloud to cloud distance. And this is done in an open source software called Cloud Compare. Mm -hmm. So this works by comparing the 2017 point cloud to the 2019 point cloud. And then it computes any change that happened between the two using a nearest neighbor analysis. Nice. Very, very interesting. What are some of the advantages and disadvantages of visual analysis versus cloud to cloud distance? So some advantages of visual analysis are that it's really relatively easy to perform and you can do it with or without GIS software. So, you could do it. I did it in GIS because I had a GIS um, software available to me at the university. However, you really could do this using actual physical photos as well. So that makes it more accessible to a wider range of people and users. Uh, another advantage to visual analysis is that sometimes you can pick up subtle changes, um, including color changes or things like that, um, that are really um, challenging sometimes uh, for a computer to detect, although all of these softwares are becoming much and much more advanced. Um, one downside or a couple downsides to visual analysis is that it's really time consuming. Hmm. So for the focus areas, I spent nearly a week mm -hmm. looking for change in each 10 by 10 meter block. Wow. For the central area alone, I had 345 squares to look at. So go one and one, like doing one block at a time, it definitely was time consuming. So you're just sitting there all day, just toggling back and forth between these images. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, the way I set up the grid too is almost uh, like a, sna a snake and ladder um, mm -hmm. pattern. And so there's no actual numbers on the grid on my in my GIS system, although I could have labeled it. And so it was easier to you know do quite a bit of it at once and then stop somewhere and take a break because mm. as you can imagine yeah. all in one go is just <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> too much <laughs> yeah um and then i guess another downside of visual analysis is that it really depends the results depend on the skill of the analyst so this is the first time i've done this um however i did do some practice i i read up on on how to do this um so knowing you know what type of change you're looking for or being able to pick things out really depends on on the analyst itself yeah for the for the cloud to cloud distance um some of the benefits is that the software is free and open to anyone um so wonderful for cost management um and another advantage is that it shows the viewer all of the change happening at once so going back to the visual analysis method I used, it's really difficult to look at all the change happening at once. As you can imagine, 
if you're looking at each individual square to piece everything together and to understand how everything is changing is more difficult with that method. Whereas with the cloud to cloud distance tool, um, this is a lot easier because the computation does that for you. It shows you this uh, colored image of here's where all the changes are, here's how much change is happening, um, mm -hmm. relative, they, it gives you a relative measurement. Nice. And so you can really see the pattern of change a lot easier using the cloud to cloud distance. Some disadvantages of the cloud to cloud distance are that the user does need to learn how to use the software, um, which is not always the most intuitive. It's wonderful, it's a great program. Um, but because it's a, an open source free program, some of the tools are not always as straightforward um, as they could be. That's uh -huh. definitely still being worked on for sure. Uh, another disadvantage is that it does need really dense point clouds in order for the tool, the cloud to cloud tool distance to work. So if your point clouds have holes in them or maybe aren't as dense, you may not get as great of results. Mm. Right. And then lastly, for the cloud to cloud distance, uh, you do need some points that are not changing in the scene. Uh, and this is important because you need to align the two point clouds so they match up perfectly before performing any of this. Mm. So for unchanging points, this can be somewhat challenging if you don't have historic buildings. I was very fortunate that I could use a few of the buildings I knew hadn't moved as my points. Mm -hmm. However, if you don't have any really recognizable buildings or geographical features, it's going to be a little more challenging to use this tool. Fortunately, however, uh, these methods work really well together because they almost act as a check for one another. So sometimes there are changes caught uh, during visual analysis that the cloud to cloud distance tool didn't, didn't catch at all. Likewise, um, the changes detected in the cloud to cloud distance are only given as change, no change. They don't tell you what change is exactly happening. Mm. The tool doesn't know, oh, that change I'm seeing here is vegetation change. So the visual analysis is really useful to determine exact, the exact nature of that change that's happening. Did the cloud to cloud also point out some of the elevation changes that wouldn't be visually obvious? It, uh, it definitely did catch some of the things that I, I didn't notice as much. So in the visual analysis step, there's one little location where it I couldn't see it, but in the, the uh, cloud to cloud distance, there was an elevation change happening and I couldn't figure out what it was. And when I looked really closely at the imagery, I found out that there was sand piling up there, mm -hmm. which from looking at it in the aerial view, like... I had gone over that square numerous times and I still didn't see it at first. Mm. So it does catch things like that. However, um, another change I saw, but in the visual analysis is I noticed that there was pathways, the pathways were wider in 2019. Right. But yet the cloud to cloud distance tool didn't pick up on that change. And so whether it's just too subtle of an elevation change or maybe it's drowned out by the other more, uh, larger changes happening in the scene or what exactly is happening there. I haven't quite um, gotten a, a hold of exactly why it's not showing up, but so together these methods work best, I'd say. Okay. Just out of curiosity, do you know why the pathways were larger two years later? So I'm 
currently looking into this, uh, the exact reason here, my suspicion is that there were more visitors in uh-huh. the last couple of years than there were previously. So whether these visitors are, um, there's been more polar uh, cruises, more tourism. And so you get large amounts of people getting off a ship and exploring this area. And, you know, having a few people there all the time probably doesn't make that much of a difference in terms of having the rangers there at the park. But when you have that many people, it's sure to have some sort of an impact. Mm-hmm. Likewise, um, us researchers never like to admit that perhaps we are causing damage to the landscape that we are studying. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if the amount of researchers at the island, uh, at Pauline Cove, is having an impact um, on the, the landscape itself. So by studying threatened areas, we mm-hmm. perhaps are causing some damage as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the results. What are some of the interesting results of your project so far? Mm-hmm. So as I said, my research is ongoing, um, but some of the most interesting results I've had so far were that in 2019, there was significantly more driftwood pile up along the coast, uh, so much so that some of the Anuvial- the collapsed Anuvialowit sod houses are actually getting covered by this driftwood. Mm-hmm. And this is really interesting because initially when I thought about it, I thought, oh, that's, you know, this must be negative. Perhaps the driftwood is going to um, rub against the sod houses and erode them further. Um, but after speaking with a few uh, specialists, they've actually uh, flipped it around and have basically told me that the driftwood could act as a protective covering. And so when the ice comes over uh, Pauline Cove in the winter time, then the ice won't rub against the sod houses, it'll rub against the driftwood instead. Okay. So it could actually be uh, really beneficial, um, but I have to do a little bit more reading on that one for sure. Um, another result I had was that in 2019, there was a lot more standing water. Uh, there's a few water bodies, uh, little um, lower areas. And so these areas are larger, more infilled with water in 2019 than they were in 2017. Mm-hmm. And this is really interesting because I've looked at the precipitation data and there doesn't appear to be that much change between 2017 and 2019. So it's not just rainfall. Mm. There's something bigger going on there. Right. So the sod houses were very close to the sea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of, of that, um, between the two images uh, from 2019 and 2017, there's definitely some beach retreat happening in front of those sod houses. Um, this is no surprise. Uh, when we visited, we noticed that they were fairly close. Um, however, it is evidence that it's happening. This erosion's happening quite quickly. My my last data set's from 2019. So to return, I'm sure when uh, either myself or my research team uh, returns in 2022, then there's likely going to be quite a bit of change as well. And I certainly wouldn't be surprised if those features are no longer there, unfortunately. Wow. Mm. It changes very fast. It, it definitely does. Um, the research I mentioned earlier, the data that I have from 2017 from that other research group, they were using that data for coastal erosion purposes. And that's because when they were there, they noticed that there was so much erosion happening that they wanted to capture this large event. 
And in the span of a year, they lost meters and meters of shoreline. And so if these features are three or four meters from the beach, mm-hmm. you can easily lose that amount of shoreline in a, a few years for sure. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of sites along the Arctic coast that are basically being washed out into the ocean because of the, the erosion of the shoreline, uh, rising sea levels, the fact that the permafrost is warming up and it's not like a solid mass as it used to be. Uh, it's one of the big losses of uh, archaeological sites in the Arctic. Exactly. The other being, I guess, when the permafrost inland is is melting and it's just slumping away with erosion. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And sometimes you get a combination of uh, both of those things happening on the Yukon uh, North Slope on the mainland side. So not on the island, um, but on the mainland mm-hmm. of the Yukon. There's been research recently to uh, document these sites because there's so many archaeological sites out there that are not known, not recorded. And unfortunately, we're losing so many every year mm-hmm. that that's actually one of the future um, trajectories of uh my research, the research group's projects. So my supervisor working with an archaeologist uh, at the Yukon government, that's one of the potential, the next steps for this project is to look at the the mainland right. coastline um, in as well. Uh, moving back a little bit to some of the, the results I had as well. Um, I did mention those pathways already. Um, so those are a little bit more prominent. And then also I, that the last thing was uh, there's been a lot of vegetation change. So in 2019, there was a lot more vegetation than in 2017. And so knowing that there's not that much precipitation difference, um, it's interesting because the vegetation seems to be doing a lot better. There's a lot, but there's a lot more algae along the edges of those water bodies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just another evidence that change is really happening at Pauline Cove quite quickly. Mm -hmm. How could similar research be applied in other locations? For sure. As I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, drones, UAVs are are really useful for areas that are hard to get to or maybe for projects where the budget is a concern, Hmm. especially with uh, new drones. The the technology is advancing so quickly that the cost of a drone that would uh, be really, really useful for archaeology and monitoring processes are it's becoming more accessible to the average person or the average researcher. So this research not only shows that drones are really useful for mapping archeological sites in the Arctic, but also that we can use them for monitoring um, sites year to year. So it's really easy to apply to other locations. And I think that, of course, I have the heritage buildings there to use as reference points Um, when you're looking for change. So any other Arctic sites or any sites elsewhere that you can use the same thing where you have buildings or you have uh, markers on the landscape that you can use. Um, This is a really, really uh, useful tool. Drones can be very useful for that. Um, But really the use of of drones in archaeology is is really just endless. Hmm. Yeah, it's one of these really fastly growing... Uh, tools being used in not only in archaeology but in a lot of fields if we think even 15 years ago this really wasn't utilized very much but now most projects are utilizing it in some way or another 
Yeah. Um, if other archaeologists wanted to do similar work, what do they need in terms of equipment, data, and training? So in terms of equipment, obviously you need a drone or you need access to a drone. So I don't own the drone myself. It's part of uh, the property of the research group that I'm part of. So being able to use that drone um, uh, in your project is essential. Mm -hmm. But then also you need to have drone training and certifications. So in Canada, we have regulations by Transport Canada to get either an advanced or just a general drone license to fly your drone. You also need access to processing software. So whether that be Pix4D or Metashape or, or some sort of process, uh, processing software that will enable you to take your drone images that you captured on your drone mission to the next level and to make your ortho mosaics, your point clouds, or your 3D models, whatever it is you're wanting to make, to, to bridge that gap between images and product, like 3D products. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, um, you also need a fairly capable computer or access to one. So I myself have had access to a lab computer, but with COVID-19, I've been working from home quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So thankfully, my, my computer, my little Surface uh, has been tested to its limit. But <laughs> it has pulled through for sure. Um, but to have that fairly capable computer that can handle JS software, can handle uh, all sorts of processing, is uh, definitely one of those things you're going to want to have if you're attempting to do similar work. Right. What kind of computer would you recommend? What characteristics would it need, ideally? For sure. It's, it's honestly just anything that can handle having... A, a large amount of storage. Some of my data sets, I have it on an external drive because my computer is not large enough to handle it. But some of my data sets are about 500 gigabytes. Mm -hmm. So that is, the average computer is going to struggle just, just to store that data. So you have to have that either that external drive or really, really high storage. Mm -hmm. But then just the ability to process things quickly especially with uh, some of those data sets, PIX4D, um, when I was processing some of mine, would take 24 hours uh -huh. straight processing mm. to be able to handle it. Yeah, I had that experience with the 3D models of objects as well. It can be very time consuming. Definitely. Especially, in, you never leave it to the end. You can't leave it on a day where you have to be somewhere because then it will go slower. Somehow it knows. And so, uh, uh -huh. yeah, basically just to have good processing power is really key. Um, and, you know, perhaps to have your little backup computer you can use while this is doing its thing, because you certainly can't uh, have other programs open at the same time, not, mm -hmm. not without seriously compromising the speed at which you're processing. So would a standard gaming computer that you might get at an electronic store would this suffice? I would say that, yeah, a gaming computer is probably the route you want to go. A, an average uh, laptop just that you're going to use for you know, regular university activities probably won't cut it in terms of processing capabilities. Mm -hmm. But gaming computers, um, especially recent ones, have great capabilities um, to, to multitask programs. So that would be a, a wise choice for a laptop for sure. 
And how long do you think the training would take? If you had no background now in using a drone or using the software within a semester or two semesters, do you think that would be enough time to get up to speed on everything, get your certifications and stuff? Or are we talking much longer? So for the certifications, um, it's really not that lengthy of a process. I didn't go for the advanced drone training. That requires actually testing and having flights in front of an instructor mm -hmm. or examiner. But for the uh, general drone like certification for Canada, it's not that lengthy. I studied for maybe like a week and then it's an online test you take and it oh, basically okay. tests you on all sorts of aviation knowledge. Some of it is much more than you need to know for drone purposes, but um, they're hoping to give you a well-rounded knowledge of, of aviation practices in case you end up in a situation where you have a drone in the air and there's a plane coming towards you or something right. like that, right? Mm -hmm. It also gives really good information about where you can fly a drone, what the legalities are. Uh, in Canada, at least, the restrictions on drone flights are increasing every year. So where you can fly it, how long you can fly it, how big your drone can be, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so that part of it, of the training, is fairly simple and straightforward. Although I can definitely recommend... Uh, you know, getting that early on and then perhaps buying a, a low grade consumer like drone. So one that's meant for the average person just to test it out and fly it and really ensure that that's what you enjoy doing in terms of training um, for the process, like all these different softwares, things like that, that definitely is going to take some time. Uh, in my case, I started out thinking I was doing an excavation and with COVID, all of these changes happened and my project pivoted to be more drone focused than it was before. Mm -hmm. So I did have to definitely bridge that, that learning gap. And that's, I guess, from my experience, it was a lot of trial and error of me learning how to use all of these different softwares. Thankfully, I have members of my research group who had used these softwares previously and were able to give me a little bit of zoom help <laughs> as everybody's uh on zoom nowadays yeah <laughs> so that was really beneficial um but it, it is going to take some time just to the learning curve for cloud compare was especially um long for me mm. took me probably five months to get a handle on everything and make everything mm. work in the way i wanted it to work as well as the the pix 4d processing at least pix 4d is a little more um it, it almost like step-by-step step helps you out with what you're doing. It, it asks the appropriate questions. So there's a little less of a learning curve with that sort of software. But for the cloud compare component, it is uh, quite a bit of trial and error. Mm -hmm. So you were learning all of these at the same time, though. You were learning one and then the next. Yeah, exactly. So I was... I I've, Essentially what happened is I found out that we weren't going to be able to go up uh, to the field last summer and so started working on more of this processing and started really thinking about how to use this data, how to look for change. And it was more of a, a learning process as I, I learned as I went uh, with the help of my research group and my supervisor for sure. But yes, a little bit of all of this software learning all at once. <laughs> yeah. It's encouraging though, because I mean, if you could go from zero to you know, using this in your research within the period of less than a year, then probably a lot of other people could also tackle the same 
the same problem, particularly if they could go and get in-person advice, mm -hmm. if they don't have to do it all uh, remotely. So it does seem encouraging that more people could try out similar stuff. It definitely is doable for sure. And I think that uh, with universities hopefully offering courses in digital archaeology and courses in drone things, drones, things like that, then it's definitely going to be more approachable for the average undergrad student with a desire to learn more about it. What are your plans for the future of this project? Right now, I'm focusing on wrapping up my thesis. And then if I have the time, I'd like to develop some educational lesson plans about climate change's impact on archaeology, about using drones in archaeology, and about the history of the island. Mm -hmm. Then when it's safe to do so, my plan is to revisit the communities of Aklavik and perhaps Inuvik to discuss the results of my research um, and to get a little feedback. Mm -hmm. Our research team held a community meeting in Aklavik in January of 2020, just before the pandemic hit. So it'd be really great to sit down and discuss my findings, even though the project has changed since our last meeting. This would also be a really great time to visit a few schools and to make use of those lesson plans I just mentioned. Other work that continues to be done by my supervisor and our research team for the Herschel Island project is the creation of an online digital archive website mm -hmm. So this website aims to share the history of the island using the 3D models, uh, aerial imagery, oral history, and more. So it's a great resource to learn more about the island. And since it's interactive, almost to feel like you get to visit. So this is great for anybody who is interested. And I'd be happy to uh, leave the link as well. Okay. And do you intend to pursue your original master's goal of excavating the sod houses, you and your supervisor? I definitely would still like to excavate the sod houses. Right now, fieldwork is still really hard to plan with the ongoing travel restrictions. Mm -hmm. So hopefully um, things ease up and it gets safe to travel again. Yeah. If I do get to go back next summer, the excavations are definitely a priority. Mm. I'd also really like to bring the drone um, to capture new imagery for 2022. By then, there will have been no tourism or research activity for a few years. So I'm really curious to see how the landscape mm -hmm. has changed and if there's been any damage to the historic or archaeological features at Pauline Cove. Hmm, interesting. Mm. What advice would you give to young researchers who would like to focus on using UAVs to do research in archaeology? I would say that the best advice is to go out, you know, save a few dollars, buy a drone and learn how to fly your drone, really enjoy it, but then also reach out and take some courses that are either specific to drone or GIS classes. So GIS is a huge, huge subfield in archaeology. It's used in geography. It's used in so many different disciplines that to take these GIS courses will be really applicable if you stay in archaeology or if you move into a different discipline. But if you want to focus on using UAVs in archaeology, having that GIS background is super, super helpful mm -hmm. as you're likely going to be using GIS in one way or another throughout your degree. And then afterwards, um, once you're working and consulting or working in government or wherever you end up working. Yeah. So definitely have the uh, 
those sorts of things, but then also to get out there and get some hands-on experience as well in archaeology so that you can refine your interests with UAVs as well. That, Like I said, I'm using UAVs in the Arctic, but I know many people who are using uh, drones, UAVs in the field and consulting or with government or things like that. So just to reach out and uh, take some classes, talk to some professionals who do UAV mm -hmm. research and uh, know what you're getting into for sure. Mm, yeah, lots of good advice. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that this is an interesting and innovative application of technology to archaeology and heritage preservation in general. I can foresee a lot of applications of this approach. So hopefully we'll see more work like this. Good luck with your work and thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much, Caitlin. It was a pleasure to talk with you and to hear about mm -hmm. your research. It is very, very interesting. Thank you. Have a nice day. Have a nice day. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Archeo Cafe podcast. For more information and news, check out our website or social media pages. Links can be found in the episode notes or simply by searching online for Archeo Cafe podcast. If you have any questions or comments for the presenters or guest speakers, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'll leave you with this quote from Aristotle. If you would understand anything, observe its beginning and its development.